reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed. He has put on strength as his belt. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Your throne is established from of old. You are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up, O Lord. The floods have lifted up their voice. The floods lift up their roaring. Mightier than the thunders of many waters. Mightier than the waves of the sea. The Lord on high is mighty. Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. Please bow your head with me. Dear Heavenly Father, you are the creator of everything. God, and when we come to you, um, I know at least I tremble. I think, who am I? And I contemplate who I am. And I, I know I am lacking in many ways. And so, God, when we come to you, I pray you give us hearts that ask for your forgiveness for those things. God, you have given your son the sacrifice and pay the cost. I pray that we seek that throughout the week and even more now. God, forgive us for where we fall short. God, and give our hearts a rejoicing after that, knowing that we are forgiven. I pray you bless this service. Amen. Amen. be seated. Dear Lord, we want to thank you for all you have given us in this past year, for our health, our happiness, for relationships and memories of what you've done in our life. We thank you for the lessons we've learned and the tears we have cried because of your ability to grow us through the good days as well as the bad ones. Thank you for the comfort you give us. May our hearts be full of thanks, giving not only today, but every day of our lives that we are so given by you. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Pastor John. Well, good morning, EBC. It is a joy and a privilege to be with you this morning. And I'm very much looking forward to being with you all again this evening at our annual ministry celebration dinner. So I do hope to see you there. <clears throat> this morning, we will be considering a portion of the text of Genesis so I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word with me to the book of Genesis in the ninth chapter. And that's page 8 in the Pew Bible. <clears throat> and if you're a visitor this morning and you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to feel free to keep that Pew Bible as our gift to you. Uh, there are also some welcome notepads near the entrance that you can take, and there's an information card that you can fill out and slip into the offering box 
we would love the opportunity to reach out and follow up with you. Now, I did fail to warn you ahead of time uh, that today we are taking a detour uh, from the Who is God series uh, just for today, and I'm preaching a standalone message in honor of National Sanctity of Human Life Day. And uh, sound booth, I've got a bit of a neck. I don't know if you can fix that a little bit, please. <clears throat> so if you're disappointed to hear that, that we're taking a detour, a detour for the day, I am sorry, but I'm not sorry. <clears throat> and I say that jokingly, but also uh, not really. Uh, if you're disappointed, I hope it's simply because you're really enjoying and learning and are encouraged and awestruck with this God that we serve as you have listened to the sermons in that series. Uh, but I'm also not sorry because this is a very important issue in our day and time, and we must think about it biblically. It is literally a matter of life and death. So I will be talking about abortion this morning. And I will be making some emphatic statements, and perhaps some even shocking statements, that might make everyone in the room uncomfortable. But hey, new pastor, why not jump right into the controversial stuff, right? <clears throat> but in all seriousness, I do believe that this is one of the most controversial topics in today's society. And I don't know that there is any other topic which ignites such passions in people to the degree that this does. But before we get started, I want to make some quick foundational statements as well. The most important one being that while I believe that abortion is a grievous sin, I emphatically proclaim that there is no sin that the blood of Christ cannot atone for. And so I want to acknowledge, and we all need to acknowledge and be sensitive to the fact that there may be even some sisters in our midst who have committed this heinous sin. But having repented and come to Christ, they have been fully forgiven. And if there is no condemnation for them now from Christ, then there is especially zero room for condemnation for them from anyone that claims to be of Christ. Christ has cleansed that dark stain and turned it white as snow. It is gone. It is paid for. It is finished. And as a Christian, your past sins do not define you and should not prevent you from living a fulfilled, joyful, and purposeful life in Christ. So that's the most important statement that I want to make before we start. But additionally, I want to challenge all of us, and I actually said it last week, we should as Christians always be ready to examine any of our current held beliefs in the light of the scriptures. So with that, the portion of the scripture that I want us to examine this morning is Genesis 9, verse 6. And the title that I have given this message is Divine Dignity. So let us begin now by reading our text, Genesis 9, 6, where God's inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word which he has spoken to us here through the pen of the prophet Moses reads, Whoever sheds the blood of man, 
by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that as a nation, Lord, we have come to a day where we recognize the sanctity of human life. But Father, even that statement is almost not entirely true. Because this day was proclaimed to be such by a president and presidents after him have not proclaimed the same thing. And others have reinstilled it, reinstalled it. But Father, it is a sad thing that as a nation, all the other 364 days, it seems we completely forget these truths. Father, this is a very sensitive topic. Lord, we pray that you would help us all to think after your own thoughts. Lord, would you give us wisdom from above? And would you empower the preaching, Father, that these words that I say would be true to your word? Would your spirit be at work in all of us? And Lord, would you do a work in our nation? To save children. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> About a two-hour drive from Athens is the Greek city of Delphi home of the Temple of Apollo. And for a few centuries, this place was known as the center of the earth. And in the Temple of Apollo sat a priestess who would come to have tremendous influential power in the ancient world. So much so that no great leader would dare to make a decision without first inquiring an oracle from this priestess. And at the entrance of this temple were three maxims inscribed in its architecture. The most famous of them being, Know Thyself. This Delphic maxim, as it is known, has occurred frequently in the literature of every age from the 5th century BC to today. In early Greek and Latin literature alone, this maxim, Know Thyself, has had a number of different meanings. Know thyself in your measure, as in know your limits. Know thyself, as in know what you can and cannot do. Know thyself, as in know your place. Also, as in know the limits of your own wisdom. Know your own faults. Know your mortality. But the early Christian and church fathers had an, had an interpretation of that maxim that should be foundational to our Christian worldview today. 
The church father, Clement of Alexandria, in the late 100s, wrote this in his famous work on the Christian life called the Stromata. He says, quote, The maxim, know thyself, means know for what you were born and whose image you are made in and what is your essence and why your creation and what is your relation to God and the like, close quote. Likewise, the church father Ambrose of Milan, writing in the 300, says, quote, <clears throat> What does know thyself mean? Except for each one to know that he is made after the image and likeness of God. There is no deeper understanding of this question than to go back to the very beginning and to know the why and how of humanity. To know of thyself that you were created in the image of God. That is how the early Christians understood and applied this maxim. And we live in a desensitized world, beloved, because of sin. And the true biblical answer to those questions are not widely known or accepted. And the worldviews that have sprung up as a result of this lack of understanding to include our own day's secular worldview, which says that we are but accidents and the success of natural selection and macroevolution by logical reasoning can ascribe no more value to a human being than it does to a cockroach. And indeed, we see the consequence of that reality. I personally have seen cases where people's lives were taken from them like they were nothing. I once worked a case where a man was killed over a 25-cent piece of plastic. A music album. <clears throat> and you hear that and think, that is horrible. And it is. But the challenge that I want to place before you right now is, why does that sound more inhumane to you, someone being killed over a CD, than a defenseless baby being murdered in the womb simply out of inconvenience. Some of us have become desensitized to the modern day Holocaust, that is abortion. In the entirety of World War II, it is said that up to 60 million people were killed. The U.S. alone lost about 418,500 to the war. Yet there are over 600,000 abortions a year in the U.S. And since Roe v. Uh, v. Wade decision, since it was handed down in the, in the 1970s, there have been over 63 million babies killed in the womb. 63 million in the U.S. alone. That is almost six times the people killed in the Holocaust. 63 million. And while Roe v. Wade was, thankfully, overturned last year. A few months after the decision, abortions were only down by 6%. And the biggest issue that I see in the headlines regarding the striking down of Roe v. Wade is the inconvenience of how far some women now have to travel 
in order to get an abortion. The reason for this widespread Holocaust is a suppression of biblical truth, of divine truth, that there is such a thing as divine dignity. What this country needs most in this argument of abortion is to have a proper understanding of the maxim, know thyself. And so I have divided this text into two main headings, divine dignity inherited and divine judgment incurred. So notice now our first heading, divine dignity inherited. This verse can be broken down into two parts. In the first section, we see an action and its consequence. Action. Whoever sheds the blood of man, consequence, by man shall his blood be shed. So that's the first section. But I want to begin by looking at, the, at this passage by starting in the second section, which gives us the basis for the consequence. So the whole verse can really be read backwards because the argumentation really goes like this. Because this is true, this is the consequence of this action. And so what is that true foundational statement here? God made man in his own image. This is the axiomatic statement of this verse. God made man in his own image. Humans are made in the image of God. And the image of God or the imago Dei in Latin is a biblical doctrine which speaks to the nature and purpose of mankind as given by God at creation. And I want to spend just a few minutes to quickly give you seven facts, seven facts as to what it means that man was made in the image of God. So seven facts about humans bearing the image of God. And turn a few pages back to Genesis 1 with me. Genesis 1. And here we have an incredible, factual, historical, inerrant, infallible, non-fiction account of the beginning of creation. <clears throat> God created everything in six days. And on the sixth day of creation, we begin reading in verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our own image, or in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over living things and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth. And every tree with seed in its fruit, 
you shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. This is where we see the unfolding of this doctrine of the image of God. And the first thing to note about the image of God is that it means that we are not God. We are made in the image and likeness of God, those two words being synonymous in their usage here in this text. We are image bearers, meaning we, like a mirror, reflect certain truths about God. We are made in the likeness of God. We are merely an image of God. We are not God. We are a representation, not a remolding of God. We are not, as some would say, little gods. We are humans that reflect the image of God. There can only be one God, and God cannot make another God because anything that is created cannot be God. And so that is number one. We, like a mirror, reflect certain truths about God, but we are not God. Number two, the image of God distinguishes humanity from all other creatures, uh, from all other created beings, in that we are both spiritual and bodily beings. We are both body and spirit. Now, this gets into a longer theological discussion as to whether we are body, soul, and spirit, or just body and spirit. I do take the position that we are duplex, body and spirit. And for example, animals are just bodily, is what I would say. But by bodily, I do not mean that they don't have a spirit in the sense of having the breath of life and everything that comes with that. And so scripture will speak of animals as having a spirit, simply referring to the breath of life. But the animal spirit is not distinct from the bodily nature of the animal. While the opposite is true of man, we are spiritual beings because we are made in the image of God, who is himself spirit. And so the scripture speaks of a distinction between our body and spirit. And so in Genesis chapter two, uh, chapter 2, we see a closer account of the creation of mankind. And God himself breathes in the breath of life into the nostrils of man. Now some theologians consider this personal in-breathing to be a part of the spiritual aspect of man <clears throat> as made in the image of God. Ecclesiastes 3.21 says, Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. The use of that is more of a statement of fact that then asks, basically, who regards this truth? The spirit of man goes upward while the spirit of beast go down into the earth. Because later in chapter 12, speaking of man going to his eternal home, we then read in verse 7, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God 
who gave it. And in Psalm 49, 15, the psalmist says that God ransoms his soul or spirit from the grave. So scripture speaks of man as having a spirit, being made a spiritual person who can be separated from the body and continue to live in a spiritual manner. And so Jesus warns in Matthew 10, 28, for example, do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Now, animals do not have souls in this sense. And if this is confusing with the language of soul and spirit, let me just put it this way. I believe the scripture puts soul under the umbrella of spirit. And if you want to study this further, I'd be happy to provide some great resources for you. But my goal is not to make a case for duplexity right now. However, the main point is this. Mankind is distinguished from all other creatures through the image of God in that we are both spiritual and bodily beings. Animals die and their spirit ends with them. Man dies, and while the body goes to the grave, the spirit of man returns to God because we are spiritual beings. Number three, in a state of perfection, the image of God in man is a reflection of certain aspects of God's own being. For example, before the fall, the image of God in man reflected the holiness and righteousness of God. Ephesians 4.24 says, Put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. But it also reflects the fact that we are rational, relational, and emotional beings. We were made male and female to be in loving relationships with each other and with God and to have a rational knowledge of God. Colossians 3.10 says in similar language as Ephesians 4, put on the new self which is being <clears throat> renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This, by the way, also makes us distinct from animals. Knowledge after the image of its creator. Knowledge of God. Animals do not acknowledge that there is a God. They have no reasoning capacity for such truths. But mankind, because we are made in the image of God, do. So we reflect certain truths about God. Number four, because mankind is made in the image of God, we are given dominion over all the earth. Genesis 1.28, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we are given dominion because we are made in the image of God. Fact number five, the image of God in mankind was stained or damaged in the fall. Because of sin, instead of the image of God being like a perfect, smooth mirror that reflects back an image of what is placed before it, it is now shattered. It is a mirror which distorts. And though the image is stained, 
and it is stained in every area that it was meant to reflect God in our holiness and righteousness, in our relations, emotions, love, fellowship, rationality, dominion, etc. The image of God is still stamped on sinful mankind and is being redeemed through sanctification in believers by Christ. Now turn back to uh, our main text, Genesis 9. Back to Genesis chapter 9. This chapter begins with God blessing Noah and his family after the flood. So this is post-fall and post-flood humanity. And we read beginning in verse 1, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. For the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. And then we read in our text in verse 6, God himself speaking, for God made man in his own image. So man, post-fall, post-flood, Though stained by sin, is still made in the image of God. Number six, the image of God in a pre-born potential human exists while in the womb and begins at conception. Now, both sides of this argument, does life begin at conception or at viability? For life outside the womb or at some other point can at this point bring in all their experts and resources and quotes and studies and how scientists say this and that. And I have no interest in doing that. I believe the scripture speaks clearly that life begins at conception because the image of God is seen as present in conception in the scriptures. David speaks of his own sinful nature as having begun at conception. Psalm 51, 5. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. David attributes his moral nature as coming into existence at conception. That is part of what it means to be made in the image of God. And it is present at the point of conception where the immediate product of conception is new human proteins and enzymes in a single cell organism with unique human DNA. Regardless of what scientists or activists want to call it, life or not, human or not human, fetus or whatever, the Bible is clear that the image of God is there at conception. Now, outside of conception, we also have the account, say, of John the Baptist leaping in the womb in the presence of Jesus in the womb. And so we read in Luke 1, verses 41 through 44. And when Elizabeth heard 
at the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Joy. Emotion. Now, was there a miraculous aspect here? I think so. But it doesn't change the fact that the aspects of the image of God are seen as present while in the womb. And let me ask you this question. When did Mary become the mother of my Lord, as Elizabeth proclaims her? She was a mother while the baby was in the womb. And a better question yet, when was Jesus Lord, who had taken upon himself humanity? Because did you catch that? Mother of my Lord? I think the answer is pretty obvious, don't you? Jesus was Lord in the womb. He was the God-man from conception. So that's number six. The image of God is present at conception. And number seven, man has eternal extrinsic value because he is made in the image of God. Now I didn't say intrinsic value because intrinsic means to have something within itself. We don't have value intrinsically. Only God does. But we have value extrinsically because God ascribes that value to us. Psalm 139, verses 13 and 14. We read them this morning. For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. and My soul knows it. Psalm 8, verses 3 through 6. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. Jeremiah 1.5, God says to the prophet, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. We are all known in the mind and will of God from eternity past. And we have eternal, extrinsic value. Christ died for sinful man, not animal and not angel. So those are seven facts as to what it means to be image bearers, humans made in the image of God. And this is the foundational axiomatic statement that is the basis for the consequence incurred by the action in our main text. Look back at Genesis 9:6. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. 
So notice now our last heading, divine justice incurred. Divine justice incurred. The text is pretty unambiguous here. Whoever murders man shall be killed. Their life shall be demanded. That's what this text is saying. That is the divine punishment that murder calls for. This is also the grounds for capital punishment. And this is by divine revelation from God himself. And let me just be clear here. There is a world of difference between abortion and capital punishment. The command from God in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20 and verse 13 is, You shall not murder. It is not, you shall not kill. It is, you shall not murder. Taking the life of a person who volitionally and maliciously takes the life of another is justice. It is killing. It is taking a life. But in that case, it is justice. It is not murder. There is a difference between murder and homicide. But taking the life of an unborn, innocent human being, that is murder. And in fact, that was the law that God handed down to Israel. In Exodus 21.12, it more clearly says, quote, Whoever strikes a man so that he dies shall be put to death. And then further down in verses 22 through 25, also of Exodus 21, it even speaks of unborn children and the way the cases should be handled when harm is brought upon them. We read Exodus 21, verses 21 through 25. When men strive together and hit a pregnant woman so that her children come out, but there is no harm, right? So a premature birth, occurs as a result, but the baby is okay. The one who hit her shall surely be fined as the woman's husband shall impose on him, and he shall pay as the judges determine. But if there is harm, then you shall pay life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, foot, <clears throat> burn for burn, Wound for wound, stripe for stripe. That's specifically specifically talking about an unborn child being injured in the womb. Life for life. But why such a punishment for murder? Genesis 9-6. For God made man in his own image. Do you see that? That is the reason why this is a proper punishment for murder. And so as the early 1900s theologian Louis Burkhoff puts it, the crime of murder owes its enormity to the fact that it is an attack on the image of God. Close quote. That is also part of the extrinsic value that is ascribed to mankind by God through being made in the image of God. 
That is also why, though, the first and greatest commandment is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Then the second one is like it to love your neighbor as yourself. Because every human being is made in the image of God. But now some people will still try to suppress the truth and try to say the fetus in the womb is still not a human yet. And so I want to share an interesting argument that the late theologian R.C. Sproul propagated. He points out that Jesus expanded on the Old Testament laws at the Sermon on the Mount and that there are positive and negative aspects of the law. And so, for example, Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, whoever looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so, Sproul says that there are negative behaviors and attributes and attitudes that the law prohibits, but also positive actions and attitudes that it requires by implication. And so in the case of adultery, negative, do not lust in your heart. Do not commit adultery. And the positive implication of that law, chastity and purity are commanded. He then applies that logic to the issue of murder. And so also in the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, verses 21 and 22, Jesus says of murder, You have heard it said of those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the councils, and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. In a similar manner, 1 John 3.15 says that everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And so the negative of that law, don't do all the things that are contained in the broad definition of murder. Don't hate, don't slander, don't insult, etc. And therefore, the positive implied aspect of it, protect and care for life. R.C. then makes this additional connection. He explains that Jesus, <clears throat> that Jesus sees the law against murder as including not only the actual act of actual murder, but also actions of potential murder. The actions of potential murder being those such as hating your brother. Because... From that, the potentiality for murder is birth. And he then explains that even if we can't prove that a fetus is an actual human person in the womb, there is no doubt that it is a potential living human person. And so he poses the question, quote, Jesus taught that it is unlawful to commit the potential murder of an actual life. What then are the implications of committing the actual destruction of potential life? And let me repeat that. Jesus taught that it is unlawful to commit the potential 
murder of an actual life. What then are the implications of committing the actual destruction of potential life? And he concludes his argument with the positive aspect of the law. He says that abortion is also a violation of the positive implied requirements of the law against murder because those are the protection and sustenance of life. And so he says, quote, to oppose murder is to promote life. And whatever else abortion does, it does not promote the life of the unborn child. Close quote. And so, beloved, abortion is murder. There is no biblical way around it. The fetus in the womb is a human life stamped with the image of God at conception. And the destruction of that life through the procedure of, abor of abortion is malice murder. And let me just quickly mention that I'm not speaking about cases where there is a threat to the life of the mother or both and a decision has to be made about whom to save. Those are very rare cases. Not the rule, but the exception. And that's a separate issue that although some of these principles certainly do still apply, must be handled with a different level of care. But that's not what I'm talking about when I'm speaking of abortion this morning. I'm speaking of the destruction of a baby in the womb due to the inconvenience that the baby causes to the mother or whatever other non-life-threatening reasons there are. And so let's ask this question based on our text this morning. What is the just punishment for a woman who aborts a baby? And let me just say this. I think it would also apply to any accomplices as well. Doctors, the nurses involved in the procedure, and the male partner when they aid in or are the cause of the abortion being sought, that's criminal conspiracy to commit murder. So what is the just punishment based on our text? The death penalty. Now let me just confess that I cringe a little when I say that. But that is what has been challenging my thinking this week as I have prepared for this message. I cringe at saying that a mother who aborts her child deserves the death penalty. But in examining myself and my emotions against the scriptures, I have to tell you, I can't seem to argue that that isn't a just punishment for abortion. And I think the reason that there is any part of me that cringes at such a just punishment just shows how desensitized we all are to the issue. We hear so much about abortion and how many of us have experienced or witnessed or have stood against the evils of it. Well, let me just tell you a really quick story about being desensitized. I once stood in a Autops autopsy room 
<clears throat> chatting with a medical examiner who was describing how desensitized the medical examiner becomes in dealing with human death. She said she even got to the point that she didn't even mind eating while performing autopsies. But then she told a story that really captured and really showed her that she had been desensitized. She once had a family of five that was killed, murder-suicide probably. All the members of the family get to the medical examiner's office in black body bags, and she begins to open them. Dad, mom, three kids, no emotion, just the regular bodies that she was used to dealing with day in and day out. And then she gets to the sixth bag, but she was only supposed to have five bodies. So she opens the bag to find the family dog dead, for which she breaks down, weeping. No tears for the human lives lost. No emotion whatsoever for them. But tears for a dog. And beloved, I'm afraid that we have become desensitized not from looking too much day in and day out at the evils of abortion, but from looking away, ignoring, being ignorant of, and suppressing the truth of the evils of abortion in our minds. Proverbs 24, verses 10 through 12. If you faint in the day of adversity, your strength is small. Rescue those who are being taken away to death. Hold back those who are stumbling to the slaughter. If you say, Behold, we did not know this, does not he who weighs the hearts perceive it? Does not he who keeps watch over your souls know it? And will he not repay man according to his work? We have a responsibility as Christians who know the truth, who know that babies in the womb are humans made in the image of God, to stand up for them. And making some pathetic excuse like, behold, we did not know this, will not fly in the courtroom of the just God of heaven. So the death of the murderer is the divine justice incurred for the act of murder because murder is an attack of the image of God in man. Whether abortion ever comes to carry capital punishment or not, the scary reality is that these people involved are currently under the wrath of God and already stand guilty of it. And if they die in their sins, they will pay the full price that the law of God demands. So we should stand up for unborn lives, and we should preach the gospel to those mothers. But again, for those who are guilty of it, forgiveness 
is granted and guaranteed in Christ to those who repent and believe because Christ entered the world through the womb as truly man yet truly God and he willingly died on the cross and so he can offer his righteousness for those even who have killed a baby in the womb. No sin is too great for the grace of God to cover and wipe out. But that repentance requires that change of mind. So now go and protect life. And if you haven't been involved in, in abortion ministries, in the conversations, we have simply stood quietly as this genocide goes on by, now go and protect life. And that looks different for different people. And that's between your conscience and God. And we are out of time this morning, but I want to close by giving you another statistic, making some more emphatic statements, and then pointing your attention to one more verse. According to the current statistic, there is one baby murdered through abortion every 34 seconds. That means <clears throat> that means that during this 40-ish minute sermon <clears throat> just in the time that I have stood behind this pulpit in this country alone <clears throat> 70 babies have maliciously lost their lives before they even had a chance. <clears throat> Abortion is murder. Life starts at conception. And no woman has the right to destroy another's body. Even if it is within their own bodies. And beloved, you, you just have to laugh at the inconsistency of our culture today. They say abortion is a woman's right, but then try asking them to define a woman. And hilarity ensues. We as Christians are called to a consistency in our logic and in our living based on the scriptures. And I'll end with this verse. Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. Babies are a blessing from the Lord. 
the Lord loves babies. As Christians, we should love and protect babies. Because babies in and out of the womb are made in the image of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That you have put your stamp on us. Lord, that you have made us to be in relationship with you and with one another and to reflect your glory. Father, because of sin, we distort that. And because of sin, our current day and age says the baby in the womb is nothing but a bunch of cells. This is a holocaust. And it will not end unless we stand up and proclaim to this world, thus says the Lord. Help us, Lord. Move our conscience. We would know what you would have us do. Stand up for the weak and the needy, whom you love and care for. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.